Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the state of cyber operations, and I am pleased to have with me my guest, Brigadier General Guy Walsh, a retired Air Force General. He is currently Executive Director of the National Security Collaboration Center at the University of Texas, San Antonio. Formerly, General Walsh served as Technical Advisor to the Deputy Commander of U.S. Cyber Command at Fort Meade, Maryland. And in addition to directing joint cyber test efforts within the Office of Secretary of Defense and the Army Test and Evaluation Command, he served as Senior Manager for Cybercom Guard and Reserve Directorate. Before I introduce my guest, I want to mention that the Association of Old Crows AOC 2022 Annual Symposium is open for registration. The theme of this year's event is the EMSO Playbook, Maneuvering to Win in the New Era, and it's taking place October 25th to 27th here in Washington, D.C. You can learn more at 59.crows.org. And with that, I'd like to welcome my guest, Brigadier General Guy Walsh, here on From the Crow's Nest. General Walsh, thanks for joining me. Oh, Ken, it's been waiting for a while to be able to do this. I know we've been looking forward to it, so thanks for the invitation. Yeah, you know, I had a great visit down at the uh, National Security Collaboration Center at University of San Antonio earlier this year, back in February, and we had we had a great conversation. And you know, we really talked a lot about you know finding ways for AOC and NSCC to to collaborate on various projects and familiarize uh, uh, the audience with with the center and some of the projects you're working on. So I wanted to you know kind of start off the conversation a little bit. I you know, given your background. I think the first time that we met was actually several years ago at a, a panel discussion on a book about the the history of cyber warfare. And, you know, that was my introduction to you and kind of the work that you used to do. So I wanted to have you on the show to, to kind of start to talk about, you know, what is the pulse of DOD cyber operations today? And that's a huge question. So you can feel free to break it down however you want. But, you know, it's it's a joint mission. But could you kind of talk about what you see as what is going on today? Where are we at on this on cyber warfare front? Absolutely, uh, and I think that was the that was probably the uh, Dark Territories book by Fred Kaplan. Yeah. Yes, uh, so that it was, was a fantastic one of the, book. Yeah, that was uh, one of the AOC uh, events in DC when I was still with U.S. Cyber Command, and so yep, I, I no, I remember that very well. Uh, so so with that, let me caveat that I now I uh, will say bring what all an, an outside perspective, no longer being with DoD and U.S. Cyber Command and looking at it from this new role uh, in academia, higher education, and particularly on the research side with being an R1, tier one research university, basically assess that the, the pulse is probably slow and steady uh, from a perspective of, hey, that's great for runners. But, but having said that, if I step back to when I first arrived at U.S. Cyber Command, we have come a long way. And so that's not meant to say that slow and steady is bad, but it's just one of those things. If you look over time, 
of where we have come, particularly in cyber operations, and you compare it to where we came in land operations or air operations in the 1920s, uh, it probably actually is at a fairly rapid pace. So there's lots of positive steps in the broad areas, and we tended to break those down in the, in the cybersecurity area, in the data science and data analytics area, in, say, cyber forensics. And the challenge, though, is really are we able to create the near-term outcomes for the warfighters, for the soldiers, airmen, soldiers, Marines, and, and now our guardians as well. So are we keeping pace with the commercial technologies? Not very likely in most areas, but that's not anything new to you or I, right? That's been 20 years of, of, of being behind the pace of where technology moves right now. Are we invested enough? Again, I'd say not likely uh, in terms of the challenges of budget of what we're doing, but probably the better question is gonna be, are we investing in the right areas and are we investing in the right priorities in terms of cyber operations? And I, I do think we're making some pretty good headway there. So, you know, talking about how to find the right areas to invest in, I mean, one of the things that we, from an electromagnetic warfare perspective, we talk about a lot is the, the complexity of the threat and the, the complexity of the, the, the environment that we have to fight in. So how do you prioritize what to invest in? given the, the, the complexity that's out there and, and, and how, how do we do a better job of keeping pace with some of those areas where we might not be up to par quite yet? No, that's great. I, I would say that if we look at the area where we currently have advantages and where we need to continue to invest in priorities, and that's in, and, and if you've ever heard any three or four star talk, it's in our number one area, and that's the actual people, the warfighters, right? It's in their training. It's in building that type capability. And the technologies that have come along over the past decade in terms of the LVC, the live virtual constructive, the augmented reality, the virtual reality, the gamification, uh, and the training type piece, that is a, a huge area for investment. We just had a great visit this month with Major General Sean Bratton, the commander of Starcom up at Space Forces. And, and part of that whole thing, when you get into the cyber and when you get into space and, and areas uh, such as EW, it's not easy to visualize as it is in a, in a simulator for, say, a ground forces or an, an airplane driver and being able to build some of those training solutions. So I would say number one in terms of where to invest is going to be in that in, in terms of looking where the commercial market is able to train now. Take a look at Meta and some of these other areas where that's just coming along tremendously. And it's it's one of those things that has a second and third order of effect. If we can invest and have those type of training capabilities here, I think that's going to draw the workforce that we need as well. So that is probably the first area where if we look at the cyber operations today and that joint mission to be able to, to build out that training for the people, for, for the actual warfighters. Back in March, the, the administration released a new national defense strategy, and, and, and in it, you know, they outlined four priorities, defending the homeland, and, you know, pace to the growing multi-domain threat posed by China, you have deterring strategic attacks against U.S., deterring aggression while being prepared to prevail in conflict when necessary, and then, of course, building a resilient joint force and defense ecosystem. Thinking about the, the national defense strategy as we have it today, can you kind of put today's cyber operations in context with the national defense strategy that came out in, in the spring? Yeah, so I think the alignment is, is important in terms of that. I think you are seeing a shift, particularly in the cyber areas, with respect to the Homeland Defense mission. 
And that's relatively new. So uh, we've had the opportunity to work, obviously, within the NORTHCOM structure here in San Antonio, uh, Lieutenant General Evans uh, with the Army North Forces in terms of looking at that homeland defense mission and bolstering up the requirements on the cybersecurity side. I think one of the things is, as we look, and we'll probably talk a little bit about, say, the Ukraine and those things a little bit later, but probably one of the wrong lessons to learn out of that is that there aren't those forces or capabilities by our adversaries to be able to affect the homeland, uh, very specifically our critical infrastructure. And so it's been brought out time and time again of reinforcing those type pieces there. And, and so that's an area where specifically within the cyber operations, within the Homeland Defense Mission, that we're bringing those pieces together there, not to anticipate that every combat operation is going to be conducted overseas anymore, you know, in terms of that. And so I think that is a extremely piece uh, that if you look at the the new priorities of national strategy and everything we're doing in terms of, I know in the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, a lot of what came out in the uh, spectrum strategy, how we do that, that's uh, probably what, about two years old now. But being able to now implement that and take that through implementation is a big piece of that. And, and again, fairly well aligned with what we're trying to do in terms of the Homeland Defense Mission. I want to ask you a couple questions about that kind of integration between EW and cyber in just a second. But before we get there, there was a recent article in the C4ISR journal where General Nakasone, he wrote, quote unquote, cybersecurity is a team sport. The scope and scale of the problem are too large for any single organization to tackle alone. The private and public sectors, including state and local colleagues, must increasingly rely on and complement one another to combat these threats and improve collective defense. That seems like a great, a really positive statement about, you know, bringing multiple sides together. Are we on the right path to doing this? And, you know, how do we, a lot of times when we talk about the collaboration between public and private sectors, government, DOD, and commercial, and so forth, we come face-to-face with this idea, this notion that because we're a free society, we have a lot of self-imposed constraints that are very important that we must keep, but it tends to uh, put us at a slight disadvantage sometimes against an adversary who doesn't have those same self-imposed constraints. So are we on the right path, you know, given, you know, General Nakasone's statement and, and any thoughts on that front? Yeah. So I would say we're on a right path. I don't know if there's the right path there. Uh, and let me approach the, the, the piece there about the self-imposed constraints. And I'm, I guess I approach it more as a glass half full. You know, the idea that we value democracy, greater uh, individual rights, rule of law, market economy, and federalism are probably our most most important strength and value that we have in the global type of thing there. So uh, yes, um, we don't have the same shortcut or path to how quickly we're able to develop you know, those capabilities as an authoritarian government, uh, such as the PRC, such as Russia, you know, so we do have many more hurdles to go, but uh, there's a reason for that. So General Akasoni's point about a team sport is not new. So when I was there, uh, in fact, when General Akasoni came on board day one, when he took command, we had just published or we're about to publish the 2018 vision for U.S. Cyber Command. And so he has held steady to that course. So that team sport was actually one of his five imperatives, right? So, and I don't remember which number it was, but it was all about expanding, deepening, and operationalizing partnerships, very particularly, you know, called out the private sectors, the states, the cities, and across the board there. And so 
again, not all of the successes originate for this at U.S. Cyber Command or at a headquarters. And so he uh, has, has, for his entire time as the commander there, continued to emphasize the importance of relying on those type pieces there. So so particularly, again, I sit here in San Antonio, we've got the largest joint base in the world, we've got 16th Air Force headquarters, right? So all of the cyber, all of the ISR, all of the weather, you have, I mentioned this earlier, Army North and the Homeland Defense Mission. We've got Air Education and Training Command, we've got the largest footprint of NSA outside the National Capital Region. And guess what? They are all 100% reliant on public and private sector for the power, for the water, for transportation, for food. And so that relationship uh, that is built between the federal government and these other entities uh, is, 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 I think, getting stronger. And again, I get to see it from a Texas perspective, but I see that same thing in a lot of the other areas where we are industrial base. Where can we use a vector check? Uh, I would say that very particularly, it's in the academic area where I sit. And that is because for historically, the DOD's preferred method has been to overclassify and conduct all of our research with a small group of extremely talented folks, but it's out of the federally funded research centers, right? The FFRDCs, such as our national labs, or with university affiliated research centers, such as John Hopkins, MIT, Stanford. We've, li- we've limited ourselves in terms of the team, in, in terms of increasing the team. And what effect does that have? It has really minimized our workforce development. And when I say the workforce development in cyber, I'm talking about not only our people in uniform, not only our civilians, but also the industries that support that. And that's an area where I think we need a vector check is to augment. We're not trying to replace what happens at FFRDCs and UARCs. What we're trying to do is, is expand that a little bit. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. 
we then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. I wanted to kind of go back to something you said earlier. You know, you mentioned, obviously, the EMS superiority strategy coming out of two years ago in, in, in 2020. And they're now in the implementation phase with that. And there's, of course, a lot in that strategy that talks about or has implications for cyber operations. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your thoughts on the intersection integration of electromagnetic spectrum operations and cyber and, and, and where we need to continue to, to, to work together? So I started back at Cybercom in 2010, 2011, and we had this presentation at that time, which was the overview of the command, the unclassified overview. And we showed this chart. It was called Convergence. That's what it said at the top, right? And it had a picture of a uh, radio and a telephone and a television, three modes of communication that were completely independent at the time, and they were really had converged into one, And right? That was part of it. And I think we're seeing that next level of convergence now you know, that reminds us time and time again that there is only one spectrum, right? Uh, and so the idea that we all operate uh, in what I will say is not only a congested, but as warriors, we have to train and uh, be prepared to operate in contested spectrum space. So we've watched that. I'd say, again, the focus right now may be a lot on what's happening in the Ukraine, but I think if we look towards what's happening in the Pacific and the Indo-PACOM area, the much larger factor is what is happening there with China and being able to, you know, for us as, as the U.S. and our military to fight in those contested and congested battle spaces. And in this case, in that electronic warfare in the cyber battle spaces. And, and so I would offer that the, the concepts of both maneuverability and survivability. I, I, again, I grew up in the in the Cold War days where we talked about ATSO, the ability to survive and operate. And those concepts are still there right at the at the intersection uh, of electronic warfare and cyber warfare. And so th those concepts, very specifically, may start with the maneuverability. We're uh, in July, I'm getting ready to host the, the, the third annual Joint All-Domain Command and Control Conference, right? And so within that, we're looking at, you know, how are we doing command and control of capabilities, both kinetic, non-kinetic. And, and so I don't want to limit the EW to the 
EW attack type piece there, but the broader use of the electronic spectrum in terms of what we're looking at and how we approach that from both a technology area and a budget area is going to be very important because what I believe we saw for a while was the fact that you had this electronic warfare organization and funding and budget and policies. And then you've really looked at that and brought that, uh, you know, two years ago into this looking broader at the spectrum on how we're going, how we're going to work that. And one of the big pieces that we're seeing is absolutely on how we have this integration between sensors, platforms, sensors, shooters, and being able to ingest that data. And that is where probably, again, where, where I look at the intersection of what's happening within the electronic warfare and electronic spectrum operations and what's happening within the cyber operations with, uh, with U.S. Cyber Command and its components. Another area that I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to work together is this idea of, of, of protection and, and resiliency of, of our systems against attack. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the, the, the protect piece? Because from an EW perspective, we oftentimes, you know, like you, you mentioned earlier, we, we, fo- we tend to focus a little bit more heavily on the attack side of, of, of the equation, but the protect side is, is actually, in today's world, is so important and, and something that needs increased attention at the earliest stages of development. So talk a little bit about the protect phase and, and, and how resiliency of our systems is critical moving forward. Sure. I think one of the lead examples for that is, so OSD has looked at what we're doing to integrate technologies, and I'm going to say 5G, but I'm going to say next generation wireless and operating RF spectrum and and some of those other areas. And, And so we've been heavily engaged from an academic perspective, but an operational perspective with Joint Base San Antonio on that, what's called Tranche 2, of the, the 5G integration for DOD worldwide. And so it's called core security, and it's really looking at how do we make it more resilient and more capable as we move through 5G and 6G technologies to do that. And, and the core security is looking very specifically on how we do that from, I'll say, the cell tower up through the cloud. So that investment is huge. I know we understand the opportunities that 5G and 6G give us, right? Because it gives us that increased bandwidth. It gives us that micro-segmentation capabilities. It gives us the faster speed that we look for. So there's an area right now where we're looking to say, how do we look at the integration of 5G securely to be able to move data and be able to make decision-making at the tactical edge because 5G and 6G play a huge role in that assimilation of data, including open source data and being able to do that. So I think that is an area where we look at that we have the potential, the ability and opportunity as we move to standalone 5G capability. And to do that, that is inherently done right and increase in terms of the resilience and the protect piece that we're going to be able to add there. I want to switch gears now a little bit and talk about you know, what's currently going on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, it's been a topic of conversation here on, on from the crow's nest, uh, getting different perspectives from experts across in, in different fields. I haven't talked to anyone with a cyber background such as yourself to get their perspective. So I wanted to ask you, what are you seeing in the uh, current conflict uh, that we are learning lessons from? And what are your, some of your thoughts on how the conflict has developed from a cyber perspective? This is probably a great example of where we're looking to understand the cyber port. It is really important as we analyze the, I'm going to say the successes or failure of cyber in a specific conflict. 
we have learned a lot about how the successes or failures are impacted by the broader strategies and dynamics of the standard elements of power we always talk about in terms of policy, uh, economics, social, not only the military. The first thing I would say is what we what we should not do is make that assumption and underestimate Russia's ability to have a significant effect if they actually did unleash their cyber capabilities of the FSB, of the GRU units across Europe or in the U.S. Because, again, I will say that that has been relatively constrained, but for good reason, right? So, and part of that is, if, and let's just look at the policy type piece of that, uh, the fact that right now Sweden and Finland both announced their intentions to join NATO. One of those pieces there is really, you know, we look at what Russia is doing or not doing, and within that context, is we understand that at least the Ukraine has taken that approach to get broad international support that I will say has given Russia second thoughts on what they're doing. In fact, there, there, there still is that argument, right, that what's been happening in the Ukraine with respect to cyber operations. You remember the initial part of the war where there were the attacks against uh, Viasat. There were the, the social media attacks that were run by, I believe that was FSB that ran some of the phishing attacks and those type of things. And and the Russians saw a rebound uh, effect that was actually against some of their people, some of their finances, against their social media and others. And so looking at it in that full context, I, I think that you know, part of that has been driven by the, the broader policy and economic impact uh, that's uh, impacting Russia right now, that, that they realize that as they put more pressure or have cyber effects within the Ukraine opportunities, that it, it, it is challenging their own sources of power right now. And last question, you know, obviously when we met uh, again back in February, it was, you know, a, a visit that I had to the National Security Collaboration Center. And, and you had mentioned recently, just early in the interview, a, a project that you're working on as part of that, as that, of that center. But I did want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about the center. What is your mission and what are some of the goals and deliverables of the National Security Collaboration Center? And, and uh, where can you learn more about it? Absolutely. So before leaving U.S. Cyber Command, I had the opportunity for about uh, nine months working with the executive director at that time, uh, Mr. Dave Luber, who's now over at the cybersecurity division with the NSA side. But one of our goals was what I pointed out originally is that we need to be able to do some outreach. The, the National Security Agency does this extremely well. They've got over 380 universities that they're working with now that have centers of excellence in, in education and in, in those type pieces there. And, and what we what we saw with that program is that the NSA has a conscious investment in working with universities and students, and they've been able to develop that workforce, and not just folks that come there, but, but folks that come there to make a difference. In other words, that they select and they make a decision to serve, in, in, in this case, with the National Security Agency, but in, in national defense and in national security area, because they're interested in making a difference. And so building those relationships, at, not when somebody graduates college, not when, not, you know, going to their, uh, you know, as their seniors to a job fair and giving them an accepted service office, but really by building that relationship. And that's what we're doing, working with our federal partners, our industry partners, is really to help develop that next level ecosystem where each day you walk into this facility where you have this interaction between government, between 
industry between students and researchers. We're about to move into a brand new facility in downtown San Antonio, which will be a combined School of Data Science and National Security Collaboration Center. And most of the areas that we're working on down there will be in the areas of cybersecurity, data analytics, cloud computing, electromagnetic spectrum, advanced wireless technologies that we talked about. Uh, and, and what we're doing is taking that piece and, and typically, again, at a university, much of, the, much of the studies are much more in a foundational area, right? Book learning and understanding foundations and theory. And what we're doing now is bringing those students and researchers in coordination with our industry partners and our federal partners from 16th Air Force, from FBI, from U.S. Secret Service and other federal entities, as well as our state agencies, and letting them see how, how those same technologies are in the, uh, in the area of applied. And so building those relationships is a big piece of what we're doing here at uh, UTSA and at the National Security Collaboration Center. We'll open the doors in January for the School of Data Science. It's uh, one of about a half dozen schools of data science in the U.S. We're working with the Department of Energy on a project called CIMANI, the Cyber Manufacturing Institute that we have here to try to onshore and bring back manufacturing to the U.S. We have about six or seven different centers and institutes that will be in this new facility, including artificial intelligence, the augmented reality, virtual reality areas. And so that's really it. It's really trying to create this ecosystem where you have the research and the industry partners working to meet government requirements and having the actual practitioners and operators here from the government side that are able to engage and see what's happening on the outside, both in academia, in research, and in industry. And so creating that ecosystem. And, and in fact, our objective is to scale that. It is, it is not meant only to be here in San Antonio or only in Texas. And that's a big piece of uh, what we intend to do is continue to scale out uh, these type of collaborations uh, across the U.S. Thank you for that. And I, you know, I, I greatly enjoyed my visit, uh, you know, back in February. And, and you know, we've our beginning discussions on different things that uh, you know AOC can collaborate with you on. So we're really looking forward to, to this uh, moving forward with workshops and papers and, and obviously having you again on the podcast or, or your center representatives from your center to talk about the, the many issues that you're addressing. So really appreciate you taking time to join me here on From the Crow's Nest. Absolutely, Ken. And, and, and again, once we open this facility, we will have a 300-person conference room within that area there. And I know that we had talked uh, before COVID hit about hosting. I know San Antonio has hosted many Association of Old Crows events in the past and has a very strong chapter here. And so we certainly will invite AOC and your team to be able to do that and, and see firsthand some of this collaboration and what's happened at the NSCC, but also tackle the exact same challenges that, that you've raised today. We're looking forward to that because, you know, San Antonio is such a critical uh, center of gravity for everything that we do uh, from electromagnetic spectrum, cyber and so forth and information. So there's so many opportunities to, to engage down there. And, and it's great to know that you're down there and you have the, the facility and the team and the mission to, to, to help with that, that collaboration. So, so I greatly appreciate it. Outstanding. We look forward to seeing you here in San Antonio. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guest, General Guy Walsh, for joining me. I also want to reiterate that AOC 2022 Association of Old Crows Annual Symposium and Convention is taking place October 25th to the 27th here in Washington, D.C. You can learn more at 59.crows.org. 
As always, uh, we ask that you take a few minutes to rate and subscribe us wherever you download your podcast, or you can learn more and leave a comment or email at crows.org slash podcast. We enjoy hearing from our listeners and look forward to hearing ways that we can continue to improve the show. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.